They tried to stop my shine, but I said, hold up. Y'all know how many hoes done tried to hold this hoe up. Talk to music. Y'all know what it is. Craig keeps it old school. Craig keeps it G. Craig don't take shit, not from anybody. Craig keeps it true. Craig keeps it real. Got Houston saying. They tried to come for me, but they just didn't. You ask me why they ain't put they back in it. Plus they ain't know. God made me to thrive. Let haters know this is show 25. Hey y'all. Hey y'all. We back. We back. We back. We back. What's up? What's up? I did not mean to be away for so long, but shit came up. Technical difficulties, whatnot, and what have you. You know how it is, life. Um, but I'm here. So welcome to Craig's Pop Life, a black gay excursion into pop culture. I'm your host, Craig Seymour. You know me. I've been writing about pop culture for more than 20 years now. You can read some of my writing at um, rnbeing.com, most of my music stuff. I'm also an author who has written a number of books. The biography, Luther, The Life and Longing of Luther Vandross. Sorry, I'm shuffling things around here. Hope it don't make too much noise. And then you can read about my memoir about being a grad school stripper hoe. All I Could Bear, My Life in the Strip Clubs of Gay Washington, D.C. And then you can get my novel about three generations of black gay men looking for love. And that one's called Who's Your Daddy? And my forthcoming special, The Life and Art of Janet Jackson. So in addition to my books, I have a website where you can find links to the songs and the other stuff that I discuss on the show. It's very easy to remember. It is simply... Craigspoplife.com. And, and y'all know it's not cheap to be buying domains that are the exact thing. So I try to make life easy for you. So go to the site, Craigspoplife.com. You can be looking at it while you're listening. Anyway, um, and I have an Amazon shop where I put all the books and the other paraphernalia, this and that's that I discuss on the podcast. And that is at Amazon.com slash shop slash Craig's Pop Life. Again, I'm about my branding. I try to keep it right, okay? Um, respect my hustle. So anyway, I am so excited about this particular show. Because not only is it the 25th show, please let the haters know. It's the 25th show, but it's also our first real listener request show. Um, now, I don't be putting y'all's names out there in the street. I don't want to be putting people on blast, so I'm not mentioning who suggested the show or anything like that. But just let me know. If you give me permission, I surely will. And in the future, if you suggest something in advance, say, say my name, bitch. Don't be just acting like you came up with this idea or just acting like this was anonymous. This was my idea, and you wouldn't be doing this damn special show if it wasn't for me. So let folks know. Be, I am be happy to receive it. Y'all know how to get in touch with me. Twitter at Craig's Pop Life or Craig's Pop Life at gmail.com. Like I said, I keep the shit easy. I keep it all motherfucking brand. But um, this show is um, a special dedication um, to an artist. And it was weird timing <laughs> when, um, when 
when the person um requested that I do this, because I was in the middle. Y'all know I my mouth be kind of slick, and my Twitter fingers be kind of my Twitter fingers, my Instagram fingers, my Facebook fingers can get a little swift on the keyboard occasionally if something hits me not quite the right way that it needs to have hit me. So child, so I get the suggestion for this artist, and I had just had a little. Instagram tete-a-tete with this person about her merch. Because <laughs> I was just being innocent, you know, like being like, oh, I want to buy more um, stuff from this particular artist. So I saw her on um, on the good Instagrams, you know, she'd be active. And I was just like, um, oh, you know, now that, um, now that everything is... Um, kind of on demand with printing and stuff, it'd be nice to have, you know, a little bit more selections and stuff like that, a little bit more little special limited editions and what, what, what not. Because this person that we're about to talk about is also a fashion icon, so I thought that she could appreciate individuality in a person wanting, you know, not necessarily something that's just the album cover that you've been looking at for 30-some years or whatever, but maybe you want a little twist on a concept or what have you. So I was just letting it breathe. You know, I was just saying, oh, print on bay. Oh, it would be nice to have something like that. Child, my little notifications went a notifying. Next thing I know, she had done responded about, you know, was this merch and that merch and had I checked this and had I checked her store. And I was like, oh, yes, because your store is on my bookmarks. And then she was like, well, how you check Spotify? And I, well, I hadn't checked Spotify, but it was, turned out it was just the same stuff on the store. But anyway, I had not done that. And, you know, it was just kind of going on. I'm just feeling like, hey, I just want to give you a coin while you were coming at me. Child, then it was like, oh, and have you checked out the winter collection? So, you know, for some reason, I'm sitting in the dead, you know, South Beach heat and stuff. And somebody's talking about a winter collection. We damn in mid-July. So I was just like, well, you know, and I'm keeping it cute. I'm keeping it respectful because I have nothing but respect for this person and have had respect for this person for as long as I can remember. But I was like, well, you know, the winter collection never really do me much good in South Beach. But then, you know, how you try to make it real, like, um, you know, you try to, like, make it um, a little bit less hard. So you throw a little emoji in. So I just threw a little, um, I think I gave her, like, a, a, a beach with a little umbrella and also a little cat smile. You know, that kind of just easy in them. And I thought that would be done. I mean, I thought I thought that was the end of it. I went on with my life. You know, I turned on TV, whatever, playing some music. I did not. I don't be on Instagram like that. So I don't be getting Instagram notifications nonstop and stuff like that. I don't really be talking to people on Instagram like that. I had not put down my phone, but I got another Instagram notification. And it was the same artist. At this point, I'm like, where the fuck is my charger? Because I'm on 10%. This is... Going back and forth, I need to plug my shit in because, you know, obviously this is <laughs> this is not going to be resolved right quick like I thought it was. Child, she was telling me, oh, well, I also, I live in L.A., but I find that my winter merchandise, um, my sweaters and my hoodies work well on chilly early morning runs. So she's still at it. And I'm like, God damn. You know, but I mean, it don't get chilly like that in South Beach, I must say. Like, I know you L.A. people need to be dressing like the whole year, every single day. But South Beach, it's just hot and it's hot.
But I was like, go on. And then she was giving me recommendations because I guess she had some. I was just talking about T-shirts because I'm a T-shirt person. Anybody knows me, I'm always wearing a T-shirt. To me, my career was made from music. You know, I got my start writing about music. So I always represent a T-shirt, um, largely music T-shirts because that's just a way of connecting me to what brought me into this industry. So you'll see me. You might see me in a suit. You probably won't see me in a suit because I don't really fuck with suit or suit-like events. But if you were to see me in a suit, it, you would very like. I'd be very likely wearing a T-shirt because that's just you know it connects me to who I am and whatnot. So we were talking T-shirts. I wasn't talking no other expanded line of merchandise or nothing like that. We was just talking T-shirts. But then she was telling me, oh, and you could check out one of my bags. I find them helpful when I'm going to Whole Foods and the grocery store. There, I'm like, what? So anyway, so then, I, so I'm in this conversation, this Instagram conversation with this legend about her merch and so I was like then finally I was just like you know well there was this one shirt that I really did like but it ain't never have you ain't never seem to have it in small which was another reason I was trying to push the print on demand thing but you ain't never really have it on small and now I see it sold out Child, again kind of thought that that would be the end of it Child, but another notification what I look at my phone, child. She's like, oh, well, if it's sold out, it's never coming back because I think it's special when things are limited edition. Don't you? <laughs> and then she ended up with merch comes and goes. And I was about to, you know, I was in my feelings that point. She's like, merch comes and goes. I was about to say, well, so do fans, mother. So do fans. But I knew that would not be true because I knew there would be nothing that could really um, make me... Um, not love this woman and what she's done for the culture and um so that was just funny but that it really that literally did just happen the day that somebody suggested that i do this particular themed podcast and we are talking about the wonderful the national treasure miss jody watt lee now, you know, this is Craig's pop life, and I don't do things like everybody else. This ain't no A to Z tribute. This ain't no retrospective, career-spanning retrospective. None of that. None of that. So if you're listen, looking for that, please don't, you know, don't don't write me. Oh, but you ain't talking about this. Oh, you ain't talking about this remix. Oh, but then she just dropped. Uh, no, nah, it's not that, okay? This is just a, you know, me sharing many moments, um, about four of them. When Miss Watley has touched my little black life through her work and her music and just the way that she moves through the creative world. Okay, so that's just what I'm talking about. I'm talking about moments that she touched me and that she made me feel seen and made me feel like my community was seen. You see what I'm saying? So I would love, you know, if you're going to do a whole musical tribute, everything, all her many different styles from this, that, hey, send me a link. I'd love to listen to it. Everything like that. If you want to do a video retrospective, you know, or if you want to do a style retrospective, all the looks there, hey, send me a link. I will be your first listener. But that's not what this is right now. Okay. Um, but first of all, let me, I need you to time travel with me. Let me take you back in time to way back to when I was just a little Afro-wearing boy watching Soul Train and just seeing Jody dance, whether, you know, whatever her hair was pulled back or if it was in puffs and her bell-bottom jeans and tight sweaters or her t-shirts and just seeing something that us, just seeing a spirit that I really had only witnessed among, say, older cousins, you know, dancing by themselves in the basement. 
of a um, you know house party or maybe by, with high school seniors popping gum on the playground. There was just this youthful energy. You know how you're young and you just look at teenagers and stuff and you just think, wow, you know, they're just so fascinating. And that's what I felt every time I saw Jody Wiley on the screen as a soul trained dancer. I mean, she, she was just so full of life, full of joy, you know, a young black woman who moved like the future and looked like she was ready for every minute of it. And I just loved watching her, you know. And of course, I followed her when she joined Shalimar all through the disco years. And though my favorite vocalist of all time is Shaka Khan, we all know this. If you've been listening to the podcast, you know that my favorite vocalist of all time is Shaka Khan. And you really couldn't have two um, more different vocalists than Jody Wiley and Shaka Khan. But there's something about... Um, the way Jody just, that's something I love about her voice and the way her delivery, the way she delivers her lines. Hold on for one second, y'all. I have to blow my nose. I'm sorry. Um, the way she delivers her lines so conversationally, it, it almost seems less like singing the speech that I just always love. I love, there's a quality to her voice that's just so conversational that makes it feel very intimate. It's almost like, not like she's performing for you. It's almost like she's just talking to you that I really love, um, that kind of intimacy. So that was, those are kind of my early experiences. And you know, just whenever, when she was singing and dancing, I just wanted to watch her, listen to her, see her move. You know, I think I now recognize this as one of the first times that I ever fell in love with the idea of cool. You know what I mean? Like, I think watching Jody Watley, like, I really, that defined cool to me. And a cool that was kind of accessible to me because it wasn't like, I'm, you know, because, of course, I know I was gay, but, you know, I had a queer sensibility or just what have you. And just there was something about her kind of cool that I really could relate to. And, you know, I just fell in love with that. And of course, it was um, cool as embodied in a teenage Chi-Town native turned LA transplant. Um, And it also makes perfect sense in thinking why I was so fascinated with Jodi, just because of our age differences, because she's almost exactly 10 years older than me. And I think I've told y'all or told someone, or maybe it's in the book or something, but... um, I think I've said before that Janet Jackson always felt kind of like a big sister to me because she's um, two years older. So I'm sorry, y'all, that's much closer in age. But, you know, 10 years is kind of like that whole when you're young, that's that whole she just represented that whole like glitter fleck dream of teenage fantasy, you know, of that span of life between not enough and too damn much. You know what I'm trying to say? Um So let's just get into a little of her pre-Soul Train bio. You know, we like to be about the facts. Um, Like I said, she grew up in Chicago where gospel was king, queen, the courts people, and everything like gospel ruled Chicago. And her father was a popular radio DJ, and she had all sorts of luminaries passing through the house. The Sam Cooks, the Jackie Wilsons, the Aretha Franklins, and others. And then once she located to L.A., she was snapped up by Soul Train at age 14. Slang your TV screen every Saturday morning. When you knew you were supposed to be cleaning your room or doing something, doing some kind of chores... Hey, there was a little pause time, right, when um, Jody Wiley came on. 
So then, of course, after she was a soul-trained dancer, she was tapped to be in one of the first of the many incarnations of Shalimar. Um, now, so much has been documented on Shalimar. Shalimar's been unsung. They've been sung some more. They've been unfiltered. Um, there's so much about the Shalimar experience, I really just don't particularly want to dwell on it. But it goes without saying that the power of um, Howard Hewitt's soulful vocals, Jody's kind of understated conversational croons, Jeffrey Daniels' dancing, and Leon Silver's grooves, it's just unmatched. I could go on and on about Shalimar, but that would be a whole nother show. Um, but like I said, I want to focus on particular moments. And the first is Shalimar's 1983 album, The Look. Okay. Um, that album coincided with a special time in my life because it was the first time that I'd ever been overseas, okay, that year. Um, I'd been picked to go as part of some school program, so I got some kind of scholarship. And, you know, I was the first member of my, even my extended family, to ever go overseas. You know, I mean, we may have all started overseas, but we ain't make the trip over here by choice. And we certainly had never gone back. You know, I know it was a different place, but... All I'm saying, overseas, overseas. And, um, you know, so I was going to Europe. Um, and I come from a working class people. So, you know, it was a special, it wasn't just no ordinary everyday type thing. And um, one thing I'll never forget is my grandfather, um, my mother's father, who drove a capital cab. He was a cab driver. He drove a capital cab through the streets of D.C. day and night. Um, before I left for Europe, you know, he was like you know, just wanted to give me like a manly handshake, you know, oh, just let me shake your hand and stuff like that. And when I shook his hand, he pressed a crisp $100 bill into my 14-year-old hand right before I left for Europe. So that's just one of those special moments that um, I'll never forget. And just, um, you know, it's one of those moments that have even has more resonance with time because I really understand black people of that generation of my grandparents generation working for that dream doing something I mean who wants to drive a cab all day long you know but doing stuff that they don't necessarily want to do because they see a future for their blood and for the people that come after them and so that just means so much to me um now you know and just imagine what it you know he came from like the countryest ass part of Virginia and what it must have meant for him to know that his um, grandson was going to Europe. So that was a special, so in other words, you know, that was a really special time for me. And I don't even know what this trip was for. It, it had something to do with leadership or something. But anyway, part of the trip, a lot of the trip was spent in London. And one of the great things about being in London at the time is that I would see ads for Shalimar's The Look all over. Everywhere I saw Shalimar's The Look, if I was flipping through a magazine, it was ads for Shalimar's The Look. And it made me feel so good and like so less like I was completely unmoored or, or, or you know, didn't have my groundings because I had this bit of blackness and blackness that I loved, you know, that around me all the time. So that, that just um, was so special to me. But it was also important is because like the looks they were serving on the album cover and um, in the packaging and everything was very much in line with what I was seeing on the streets of London. So it was a really interesting thing about um, 
seeing something very familiar, but as I'm discovering these new street styles and looking at all these new wave people and all this kind of stuff, it's like Shalimar with the look, they were also kind of serving those looks. So it was, um, so there was something that was really, um, sort of expanding about that in terms of thinking about possibilities. And one critic, um, I hope I get this man's name right, Bertram Ash, has described the 80s as, and you know, which a lot of people can refer to that as kind of the post-soul era. He refers to that as a time of black exploration, whereas, you know, we... Uh, were grounded in blackness, but we were also kind of looking around. Oh, that's cute. What are they doing over there? Oh, maybe I'll try that. Maybe I'll try that. And so that was very much the moment um, that I was experiencing. And that's kind of what Shalimar and the look um, represented to me. Because I was black sporadin all throughout my um, time in London. I say that definitely um, defines my entire um, teenage experience. And because, you know, I was very, very attracted to the new wave scene, both because of the electronic music and I think also because of the androgyny, because it was increasingly being cl becoming clear to me that I was gay. So I was just whatever in London, you know, whatever looked new wave, whatever the boys was wearing, whatever, you know, if I happened to see a video or something, whatever style or stuff, I was for it. I was just going head first, you know, just it was me. So... Anyway, you know, with whatever little budget I had other than my granddaddy's $100 bill, I was going to the vintage store. I was doing it. You know what I'm saying? So I'm just trying to be new wave, just that new wave kid. Because you know how, like, when you go away, you want to come. Because I think in um, when you're a teenager, too, there's always that kind of narrative of you go away for the summer and you kind of can come back a different person. So I think I was very much invested in that and I was going to come Back home, I may have been a little awkward, little black boy reading X-Men comic books before I left. I was going to come back the new black, new wave pop star, baby. Just watch out, okay? So I get back from London, and it had probably been a week or so the most. But, I mean, just in general, I probably, probably from the moment I stepped off the plane, I looked like a damn meme if they had had memes back then. You know those memes, like you know, one listen to something or one to, I would have been like a one trip to London meme. And, um, you know, I had on the parachute pants. I had wore out a tight ass baby blue human league fascination t-shirt. I mean, I was trying to, I was trying to twist my hair and put little ribbons in it and stuff. Like I thought that boy George would do, but ended up looking like the cousin boy George might've kept in the attic or something like that. You know, I was just doing it up. So anyway, on one of my first nights um, back in D.C. after the trip, my mother took me to see Phyllis Hyman um, because Phyllis is also one of my favorite, all-time favorite singers. And it was at Blues Alley. And I don't know exactly what it is like now, but in the 80s, Blues Alley was in a motherfucking alley. And it was kind of a small-ass, very intimate spot, okay? So anyway, we were there, and I was all excited. And shah, I was dressed in my just from London finest, bitch. I mean, I might have even added like a Paisley smoking jacket that I bought from the Goodwill. And I had on a big Doc Martin boots and all this kind of stuff. I was looking like, I felt like I was looking like black London's finest up in the Blues Alley in D.C. Well, honey, Miss Phyllis who was not necessarily known for her, um, well, who was known for her moods. She was not feeling me that night. No way, no how. 
because we were having we had floor seats and you know the stage, but it was very close. And I mean, she stared me and my you know raggedy looking London look down through the whole ass show, just give me the evilest vibes. And this was despite the fact that I knew every single song in the set backwards and forwards and was, you know, I didn't dare sing along, child, but I was, was moving my lips like, yeah, you know, that I know going to make changes or whatever. Then, child, I guess she wasn't content just to look at me and my, you know, just back from London ass. She stared at me and went on, a, she stared directly at me and then went on a diatribe about how no one wants to hear real music anymore and that everybody is just into fads and that she just don't do fads and she's not about that and that she just doesn't understand where the industry's coming from and she, she people just accept any old thing these days. And meanwhile, she is staring directly at it. This is a sold out show in DC Blues Alley. You know, everybody's there, all of black D.C., everybody listening to Quiet Storm is up in the spot. She's standing right in front of me, just going off about the state of modern music just because, I don't know, I'm wearing parachute pants and a paisley thing and maybe some ribbons in my hair or whatever and my Doc Martens. But y'all, that was not even the end of it. Okay, so then after the diatribe, she gets not but like two feet from my face and breaks into a parody of Cindy Lauper's Girls Just Want to Have Fun. I lie to you not. And, you know, it's all the while talking about how this is what the kids want now and she doesn't do disposable music and what now. And meanwhile, I had every Phyllis Simon album at home, even the Norman Connor stuff, you know. And I still love Phyllis to this day. But honestly... That literally was like the cruelest thing that had ever happened to me or has ever happened to me at a concert. And I've never forgotten it. I mean, it was all, it was just, it was utterly humiliating um, for her to do that to a teenager that was just showing off some clothes that he had bought during his first um, trip to London. You know what I mean? So all of this is to say that Jody really was my savior through this black exploration period because she made me feel like I could play with clothing. Maybe I should put it together better, a little bit better. Maybe I should work on my styling. But she made me feel like I could play with stuff like that and listen to new sounds and do all of that kind of stuff and still be my same black ass self. So that's why Jody was so important to me during my um teenage period like I said the black exploration period and I love the dead giveaway video with her serving styles as seen in London and I love the song I especially love the song disappearing act because that had a, a real new wave style to it I'll put all of this on the on the website um but it was really this black exploration phase that took my love to her to another level um because like I said I had experienced like at this Phyllis Hyman show I had experienced someone really reacting negatively to me as a young black man trying something new and I felt like Jody gave me the space to um explore those types of things unfortunately like the minute I don't even know if I mean as soon as Shalimar's a look dropped the group almost immediately broke up 
And um, and I ain't fuck with any of the other little Shalamariites or what all those little other people. I'm sure they were talented. The Lisas, what was the name? The guy, Mickey Free, whatever. I'm sure they were very talented. I'm sure they're nice people in the individual rights. I wish them nothing but the best. But I wasn't fucking with any Shalamar that wasn't the original fucking line. Well, not the original lineup. I was the Shalamar that I fucked with was Howard Jody and Jeffrey. If it wasn't that, I wasn't trying to hear it. You know, I wasn't trying to dance in the street. Um you know, from the Footloose, they even had a song on the DC Cab soundtrack, I think, that I, I was mad about just because it wasn't the original, it wasn't the um, Howard, Jeffrey, Jody lineup. So now once she um, left Shalimar, she stayed, um, she went to London, she was living in London, she stayed in London, I kind of was obsessively following her through the London years, and I cherished cherished every sight of her in the Dude They Know It's Christmas video, walking out her limo, wearing her little black and white ensemble, wearing her fuchsia lipstick, and singing the chorus next to Karen from Bananarama, I was obsessed with all of that, um, I loved her UK-only singles, Where the Boys Are, and My House, um, there were some other ones, but those were my favorites. And my house actually was later covered by um, her friend Jermaine Stewart, who she first met on Soul Train. And of course, um, you know, a lot of us know about Jermaine Stewart's story. This is what she told me about Jermaine um, in an interview I did with Jody in 1999. She said, when I met him, he had this huge afro and everybody used to think he was Michael Jackson. And they hit it off on the set of Soul Train. And you, you would think, oh, you know, young black woman, a gay man, of course they got along and everything like that. But no, 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 no. That is not the way that Miss Jody Watley would tell it. She said that these some mean ass queens on Soul Train. And she said to me, I'll probably get strung up for saying this, but there were a lot of divas, a lot of bitchiness on the set. So it wasn't just, you know, she wasn't just getting along with any of those queens. There was really something special between her and Jermaine. And she was so cool with Jermaine um, that she told me that after joining Shalimar, that she was always trying to find a way to keep him traveling and hanging out with her. Like, she just liked being around her. She liked that energy. So he'd be the stylist, the hairdresser, the background singer, just anything um, and whatever. And, of course, Jermaine later became a singing star in his own right. Um, his biggest hit was We Don't Have to Take Our Clothes Off. But, and this is another um, Craig's Pop Life sidebar, but it's what we do, it's what I do. Um, my Jermaine top three, starting, which I'll post on the site, starting from the bottom, would be number three, it'd be The Word Is Out, because the beat is so funky and it kind of cheekily plays with his whole sexual ambiguity thing, so Word Is Out. Number two would be Dance Floor, the extended version, because it had a hot freestyle type groove. Um, it was produced by um, John Jellybean Benitez kind of around the same time that he did Love Will Save the Day for Whitney Houston. And again, he has these lyrics that are sexually playful, especially, and you know, which was kind of risky um, at this particular time because of the gay backlash that was due to AIDS. But at one point he sings, upside down or on your knees, the choice is yours. I'm versatile, baby. Um, and then my number one Jermaine Stewart song, it was this very last single, Set Me Free, which was released in 1982. And it was produced by house, um, house music, you know, legend, Jesse Saunders. 
And there's something about the way he sings the chorus. It's like, set me free, take these chains from around me, um, let me go. And I mean, that just reminds me so much of, I had so many friends that were dealing with AIDS around that time. And just, it just like, just the idea of being free from the burden of being sick and the burden of the prejudice and the bigotry and the burden of the medicine and everything like that. So when I hear um, that, Jermaine Stewart song, all of that kind of comes um, comes kind of back to me. And Jermaine actually died of AIDS-related complications five years later. So that was 1992 when that song came out, so like 1997. And I also talked to Jody about this. Um, unfortunately, she hadn't really spoken to him for about three years before his death because of a falling out. She told me, I started hearing that he was sick, and it actually brought us together. But in a situation like that, I've known people who've handled it in different ways, and it wasn't something that he really addressed or wanted to talk about. It was like it wasn't really happening, and as his friend, I had to respect that. So RIP to Jermaine Stewart and all the other black explorers who paved the way for me out there. I thank you so much. Um, the second Jody moment I want to talk about is still a thrill. Um, from her solo debut album, she left London. The, the the whole thing with the where the boys are and stuff. I think that was with Phonogram. That didn't work out. They wanted to go different directions or whatever. So anyway, she came back to the states and she signed with MCA, which was hot at the time. They had everybody. They had the Patti LaBelle's. They had the Stephanie Mills's. They had the New Editions's. And you know that was. Three or four artists right there, because you got the uh, Bobby Brown, you got the Ralph Tresbond solo project, you got uh, Johnny Gill. Well, no, I guess he was on Motown, but then you got um, BBD. So a lot was going on at the Black Music Department at MCA. When she, you know, um, I'm not saying that was all happening when she um, initially signed with Gerald Busby, who was in charge of it all, but, you know, she, there was definitely a lot of energy going on at MCA, and she certainly added to this energy. So, I bring up Still a Thrill, because this is the first time I really understood Jody Watley's quick, dry wit and her humor. You know, because in interviews, she can be kind of understated, you know, she speaks very slowly, and she speaks very, um deliberately and kind of, you know, has kind of a monotone in a way, not in a bad way, but that's just the way that, um, you know, sort of in the same way Beyonce kind of has a, a monotone speaking voice. So in all the time that I loved her, I never really got an idea of her personality. Okay. So again, I need y'all to go back with me. Come on. Time travel. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. The year was 1987 and her debut album had just dropped. Now, the first single, Looking for a New Love, was still climbing the charts. But of course, me, I was a super fan, so I went out and bought the album the day it came out and had been bumping it ever since. Just in case you care, Love Injection, produced by the late Bernard Edwards of Chic, was and still is my favorite cut. But anyway, so me and my friend, um, I had a good friend throughout kind of my teenage years, named Alan Eagleston, um, rest in peace. Uh, we were hanging out, you know, we both loved Jody Watley and everything like that. And so we were hanging out in Georgetown Mall, which was kind of like the cool mall. 
And we were just walking through, cutting up, you know, making fun of people and just whatever, doing everything like that. Just, you know, doing the little teenage gay most. And we spotted this couple from, I think, from the side and kind of from the behind. And we were like, we just started laughing. We were like, who do these people think they are trying to be? They were like clones. Like somebody was trying to be a Jody Watley clone. And somebody was trying to be an Andre Simone clone. And they were just doing it. They had all their black clothes on from head to toe. And they had on their sunglasses. You know, the woman who was trying to be Jody had all this big Jody ass hair all over the place. And I think the man was trying to be Andre. He had on his glasses. And I think he had on like a black beret or everything like that. And y'all, we was laughing our asses off. We were like, these posing my ass motherfuckers, we were like doubled over in laughter. Like, who is you trying to fool in D.C. walking around like you, Jody Wiley, and Andre Simone? Like, this is D.C. So y'all, so we just walking and just laughing and laughing and laughing and laughing and laughing. And you know, y'all can tell I'm a smart ass, like a smart ass even now. So imagine how much of a smart ass I was as a teenager. So we walk, and we just get, like, just behind them, right? And I said, I said look, I'm going to say something to him. So I walk right by, and I said, still a thrill. Do you know, without missing a beat, the woman who I didn't think was Jody came right back with, thrill. Me and Alan, we collapsed when we realized that that was actually Andre Simone and Jody Wiley up in the Georgetown Mall. We were like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, we love you, oh my God. I'm like, I even have where the boys are and so on and so forth. And we were just so, um, you know, it was just, um, it was crazy. And that just always strikes me because, like, Stilla Thrill wasn't a single then, it wasn't anything. She wasn't thinking some smart ass. Gay boy was behind her about to throw her some shade her way or something like that. But literally, I just went, still a thrill. And she went, thrill. And I was like, that takes a quick mind to be able to respond to something so quickly and so randomly. And it turned out, I think they were, um, I think we later found out that they were there um, for doing Video Soul. I think they were on Video Soul that night because at the time, that was when BET headquarters were still in D.C. So when you saw big stars come through town, if they weren't performing or something like that, it was probably to do Video Soul or something, and that was that. So that just goes to show you sometimes when you look at people and you think they are posers, sometimes they are not posers, sometimes they are the actual people. Just a good little life lesson to know. And I remember when the Still a Thrill video dropped, and it was just everything. Because it had Jody and her fellow Soul Train dancer, alumni dancer, Tyrone Proctor, who was nicknamed The Bone by Don Cornelius because of the way that he could move his limbs all fluid and, you know, double-jointed looking and stuff like that. And in the video, he's serving you all kinds of mustached, black clone realness. You know, got the stash, got the hair pulled back, all black on. And they're dancing on the night streets of Paris, just doing it, just doing it. And in the Paris Opera Houses, um, the Paris Opera House, just one. But in the Paris Opera House, you know, making all sorts of shapes with their bodies. And they were whacking, you know, that was... um sort of the dance style that was a lot of heavy arm movements and stuff that grew out of L.A.'s black and Latino community. So whereas like in the East Coast, the children were voguing, in, on the West Coast, um, they were whacking. So that was just so fun to see the move and everything like that. 
And the best part of the video, the one the part that made me and Alan um, scream, was when they were dancing on a build in front of she's in the building and he's in front of the building and spray painted across the facade of the building were the words gay color say cool say what and although she never made a statement about it me and alan knew exactly what up was up and what she was trying to tell the children by including gay graffiti in her video and you know this was 1987 so just know your history, you know, I mean, it's great that we have shows like Pose On and stuff like that, but one of the things that has bothered me about this whole season is sort of the slavish devotion to Madonna, and Madonna being this trailblazer for the gay community, and certainly she was that in the mainstream, but we had people like Jody Watley having gay in her video in 1987, do you know what I'm saying? So sometimes I wish we had a little bit more of that representation, especially in a show like Post that's about a community of color that would have known something like that. And it's not about like a bunch of white gays that may not have known something like that. So just a small little bit of um, whatever on my part, a little bit of critique. I love Pose. You know I do. But like I said, I think they had, I did a little bit too much with the Madonna this season. And there were pioneers like uh, Jody doing it even before. Which leads me to a good old segue to my third moment, which is 1989's Friends. And for this, I'm going to quote my goddamn self. This is, I wrote this in 1999. I just read it and I was like, well, that's basically how I feel now, so I'm just going to read it. So here I go. Um, a year before Madonna's Vogue sanitized the ball culture of black and Latino I'm going to start that all over, sorry. A year before Madonna's Vogue sanitized the ball culture of black and Latino drag queens and transformed a biting social critique into a tepid pan to Hollywood, Watley staged her video for the single Friends at a New York City nightclub and included actual participants voguing. It was all real people, she said. They weren't models. They were who they really were. And if you look carefully, you will see a pre-platinum RuPaul and all sorts of um, 1980s New York nightlife luminaries in the video. And the song is a duet. Hold for one second, y'all. Let me sip some from my Red Bull. The song is a duet with Rakim, with rapper Rakim. And this was long, and, but it wasn't like he was just in a rap break. I mean, they were integrated throughout the whole song. And this was long before this became commonplace. Like, this was six years before Marion Meth did it, um, where the vocals and the rhymes kind of get equal play. So she was very much a um, visionary in merging the worlds of R&B and hip-hop. But the most brilliant thing about um, that she was able to accomplish with Friends, I think, um, is that in the video she was able to merge queer bulk queer ball culture with the macho world of hip-hop or essentially what they tried to do in that scene and a couple of episodes ago opposed where they were doing the you know kind of b-boy banji take on vogue is like that's what she was trying to do because she recognized that those worlds were so apart but she felt like through this video she um could bring it together. Essentially, she was trying to create through video a sort of um, intersectional, all-inclusive, utopian community. And this also speaks to Jody as a 
post-soul pioneer. Because I quote from Francesca Royster, who wrote a great book on post-soul artists. And she writes that post-soul artists maintain ties to the familiar, to home, the black community. But they also ask where the assumptions of black respectability might also fail us. Erasing our desires or constraining the way we move in the world as sexual and sensual beings. Post-soul artists seek to create a space not invented, to create new futures. And that's exactly what Jody was doing like that, because, you know, I was in the club at the time, and yeah, the B-boys and the queens did not mix, but she had the vision of trying to make that happen um, in the video. And she even admitted to me, you know, when I later interviewed her, she said there was drama on the set. She said, at first there was a lot of tension. Everybody was segregated at different parts of the club. But then she said that by the end of the day, it was a really cool vibe. And to me, it just seemed like, you know, we're talking again, 19, um, we're talking again, 19, um, what year we're talking about? 1989, anyway. Child, now I have to go back through my notes. I'm getting all confused. Yeah, 1989. Child, that's a good thing. Trust yourself in your first instinct because it's usually right. Anyway. Um, but just thinking in 1989, she's imagining a seamless merging of queer and hip hop culture that we still haven't reached. But, you know, I think of people like Little Nas X coming out and what that kind of means for hip hop culture. And it's like we're kind of getting seems like we are getting closer to this vision that she imagined back in 1989. So um, just to reiterate, to make sure if you're not keeping your timeline right, the Friends video was done a year before Madonna's Vogue and Friends was a top 10 pop song. So there's no issue with it being obscure and Friends featured Voguing featured actual balls. So you know, hashtag pose FX. It's like, I feel they really dropped the ball for not mentioning anything, for not having, I mean, pray tell could have said something salty like, that ain't nothing but, jo but what Jody Wiley was doing a year ago, or just something like that, but just to acknowledge her contribution to ball culture. Because Madonna was not even, she was using ball culture and putting it in another context. Jody was actually putting ball, ball culture at, filming it in an actual ball in her video, but there hasn't been any mention of that, although they play a lot of Jody's music on Pose FX. You know, and I ain't blaming nobody in particular, but I do notice that the Madonna stuff in Pose gets spread on really, really thick when um, Ryan Murphy either has written an aspect of the episode or has directed the episode or something like that. And as we know from Janet Mock's interviews, um, particularly one she did in Newsweek, Ryan Murphy, um, well, this is, she ain't say this in the interview, but Ryan Murphy is a friend of Madonna, but he's also one of those white Beyonce is overrated type of gays. So I'm not saying, but I'll just let that speak for itself. Um, my next moment is a little um, personal and actually has echoes of that unfortunate Phyllis Hyman incident. <laughs> um, Jody released an album called Affairs of the Heart in 1991, and it had many wonderful moments. Um, it features perhaps the most beautiful ballad that she's ever recorded, It All Begins With You, 
Um, and it also marks the first time that she worked with um, house master David Morales. They would later create the masterpiece Ecstasy on her following album. So I love this album so much. Um, at the time, I called it one of the most honest explorations of committed relationships that 90s R&B has produced. But now one song in particular really just touched me so deeply and still touches me so deeply. It's called Until the Last Goodbye. And it really draws on Jody's strengths as a conversational songwriter. It just feels like she's speaking directly to her lover, unfiltered. And she's saying, like, I know it ain't easy, but I want to try again. Till we get it right, let's try again and again and again. Because I believe in what we share. And I don't want you to go. I mean, those are some real ass lyrics. And like, that just always touched me. It touched me in a way like the lyrics on Mary J. Blige is my life. You know, where you really feel like, damn, she is like really talking to KC. Like he might even be in the studio while she's talking. You know what I mean? Like you really feel that, um, that connection. And I didn't know at the time that there were problems going between Andre and Jody. So she probably was really talking to him like that. But, um, but that song just always has really touched me because it's so honest. And she even said later that that you know that that was one of her most honest songs. Um, so I don't know. It's a very emotional song, but it is a favorite song. But you know, not everything is probably for every context. I have, as I've grown older and wiser, I perhaps have learned that. So maybe the following thing that I did was not such a good idea. But I'll just tell it as it happened. You can be the judge. Okay. So a few years later, after her breakup with Andre, you know, after the album had come out and everything like that, I saw Jody at a sold-out show at DC's Carter Baron Amphitheater. Now, everybody in DC knows about Carter Baron Amphitheater. It's a big outdoor place. You bring your picnics. It's kind of like that place um, in Atlanta that everybody goes to and brings out all their wine bottles and everything, but it's not quite that fancy. It's just like a big park area and everything like that. And so we're seeing Jody and we're dancing and she's great and everything like that. And everything is wonderful and I love it. And me and my friend are all we're up close and everything like that. Anyway, at a pause, at a moment where she pauses in the show, she asks for a request. Now, I did not walk into the sold-out Carter Baron Amphitheater that day thinking that I wanted to make a request. But if I'm watching a performer and the performer is actually going to solicit requests, then, well, damn, I'm going to go ahead and express what my request was. So I said, until the last goodbye. Child, she looked at me like I had done, farted up the whole amphitheater. And, you know, an amphitheater is outside. So you can imagine how smelly a fart would have to be to funk up the entire outdoor amphitheater. But she looked at me like that's what I had done. She said, until the last goodbye. And then she ain't even saying nothing more. She just went on to another request. When I tell you that my friends died laughing, I mean, they were uncontrollable. <laughs> they were laughing so hard at the way she did me over the song that to this day, if I make any kind of request that they deem unreasonable or something like that, or they feel like I'm being, you know, out of character or not in the way things are supposed to go, they'll just go, until the last goodbye. And that's just, 
the end of it. So fortunately, when I interviewed her in 1999 and I had picked my face up off the floor and reattached it so that I could actually conduct an interview, um, I was able to get such closure on the issue of Until the Last Goodbye. Again, like I said, she said it was such an honest song for her. But then she admitted that she said, I can't even listen to Affairs of the Heart because I was so unhappy in my life at the time. So that gives me a little bit of context why she might not have wanted to go from Don't You Want Me in a party atmosphere at an outdoor theater to Until the Last Goodbye. So I get it. I get it. Um, and, you know, that's still a very special song for me. And I will definitely post that on the Craig's Pop Life website. Now, for the last moment, um, I want to talk about the last moment I want to talk about in this special selected appreciation is the 1995 single Affection. Okay. Uh, so we've been in what? Well, I'm not going back to the years because I'll just fuck it up. So we're in 1995 now. So just stay with me. Now, at the time, she had left MCA Records and had gone independent. Now, this is just what sort of artists do now. You know what I mean? Like artists have their little period of hits on a major label. Then they immediately go to like E1 Records or something like that. That's just something they do. It's just a thing. That was relatively rare back in 95. I mean, she was doing something different. It was kind of like when you got dropped by a major label, your ass sort of just disappeared. And so, but, you know... Jody ain't regular, so Jody was making sure she wasn't going to disappear. So Jody founded her own label and partnered up with um, former Stax executive Al Bell, and she decided to put out her own um, stuff. And you know, it was not put being independent in '95 again. Not only was the kind of I'm not saying stigma, but not only was it not done as much, but this was during the time that the record industry was still very much a machine that you needed to get certain things done. You could not do it yourself. You could not just do an Instagram post and be like, hey, my album's out, go to iTunes, and you've never, a physical copy has never passed by you or anything like that. This is when it's time that you still need to press records, you needed to press CDs, and you needed to press cassettes, you know. Um, and have those actual physical things and get them into stores. That was not an easy thing to do, okay? Um, you had to have folks go out and promote the record to radio. You had to pay these promoters um, that like a label would normally do. You had to make a video. You had to pay for the video. Then you had to pay for somebody to promote the video to the video outlets, um, then you had to have a publicist. So there were a lot of costs involved here. It was like you really did have to have your own company because this was you had to have or at least, you know, outsource all of these different things because it, the music industry is much more of a um, physical thing in terms of physical sales, but also just in its protocols, how. Um, program directors of radio stations would only take meetings for records with certain promoters and just, you know, there were certain people that MTV would talk to and certain people that would, they were did, didn't. It was a whole thing. Um, so it was just a lot for somebody to be making a record creatively and then also have to kind of understand all this stuff, which is, of course, what a label did for you. And of course, so not, but not only was it not an easy endeavor, it certainly wasn't an, ex an inexpensive endeavor. And 
there was a lot at stake because this was all her own damn coin. You know what I mean? Um, and this was coming eight years after, this was coming eight years into her solo career. And I've already discussed the things that she'd done for the queer community during that time, right? We, of course, we had the gay graffiti and still a thrill. Then there was the queer ballroom meets hip-hop utopia of the Friends video. And there were a couple of other things that had happened sort of since then, before we get to affection in 95, that I think are worthy bringing up. In 1990, she took part in this project, Red Hot and Blue, which was a charity project for AIDS research and relief that included many top recording artists of the time reinterpreting songs by the gay songwriter Cole Porter, and it included many acts that were hot at the time, like Annie Lennox, Lisa Stansfield. This was back in the Lisa Stansfield days. Lisa Stansfield, with her white butt, she was scoring R&B number one. She was so bad. So this was really during her heyday. Nana Cherry, who was still hot. And it also involved a lot of openly queer artists. You got your Katie Langs, um, Andy Bell from Erasure, and Jimmy Somerville. And the cool thing about the project is that it involved both songs and videos. So, you know, it's just the perfect um, type of outlet for Jody. I need to have a sip of my Red Bull. Hold on for a second. But um, her label ain't wanted her to do it because they thought if she took a part in a um, sort of a project that had something to do with AIDS, that rumors might get started that she had AIDS or maybe she was gay or something, you know, was up with her. And this was during the time when there were rampant rumors about Luther Vandross's sexuality and health. And it was a year before Magic Johnson revealed that he was HIV positive. So this was really in the kind of but people with the whispering years and people, ooh, she losing weight and oh, it's what she's doing, whatever. And so anything that you did that was kind of associated with AIDS, even charity work or something like that, could then put some sort of suspicion on you. But Jody did the project anyway. And what's especially groundbreaking about it, aside from the politics of just doing it, what's, what's groundbreaking about what she did just in terms of the larger industry, because this was in... Why don't I have these dates right? Okay, so this was in 1990. So what she did that really shaped the visual look of the 90s and 90s R&B is that she worked with famed fashion photographer Matthew Ralston on the video um, for the song that she did, After You. And it, I'm not sure if it was his very, very, very... Is this song called After You or After You Who? Because I tried to get it. The song's called After You Who. Okay. So um, for the video for After You Who. And I'm not sure if this was Matthew's very, very, very first video, but it was certainly one of his first. And it's a really wonderful video. Okay. So she played, it's like an old back in the day type um, Harlemish video, you know, where um, she plays like a cabaret singer at a cotton club, like Night Spot. And so most of the videos her performing for an all-white audience you know everybody's white except for her and the band and she's just performing and flirting it up and doing her little performance thing but at the end of the video she winds up dancing in the arms of her good black man who was then still at the time was Andre Simone but it's just a really romantic video and it really um in a in a project that's showing AIDS and showing how AIDS affects different communities and everything like that just adding that racial narrative of how a black performer kind of had to have double lives back in the day I just thought was a really um smart way of approaching that video 
And um, Matthew Ralston then went on to do so many iconic clips that we can really consider that define the um, visual era of the 90s. He did In Vogue's My Lovin'. He did TLC's second creep video, the one that we know after the the first one didn't work out. He did Red Light Special. He did Mary J. Blige's I'm Going Down. And even Beyonce's Work It Out, among many, many others. So, um, you know, and Jody was one of the first to work with him. She was one of the people to help him move from that fashion world to the pop R&B world. Because it wasn't, you know, Madonna was doing things with her Brits. Jody also worked with her Brits and both Madonna and Jody worked with Stephen Mizell, but it was a time that fashion photographers were trying to get into that door, and um, they were trying and through their collaborations with some of the biggest pop stars, they were able to do that. And Jody was certainly instrumental in Matthew Ralston's career as a um, music video director. And then in 1993, after she released her album Intimacy. A UK-based um, group of producers, I don't know if this is one person or more than one person, but it's, they were called BBG, or he was called BBG, or she was called BBG. They were called BBG, and they reached out to her about doing queer versions of her largely spoken word number called When a Man Loves a Woman. So it's just kind of um, talking about, you know, just sort of the responsibilities of love and what somebody's supposed to, if they love someone, what they're supposed to be about. So one of the lines is, when a man loves a woman, he knows the reality of AIDS. He won't bring it home to you by some other love he's made. So they wanted to do queer versions of that, and she was cool with it. So they did a when a man loves a man version, where they kind of chopped up her vocals, and instead of her saying when a man loves a woman, she's saying when a man loves a man. They did a when a woman loves a woman version, same deal. And these weren't just like little side things put out, you know, during Pride Month for the gay. I mean, these were mixes that were available on the official single. So um, she told me about it. She was like, "I thought they were really cool. It could have been disastrous, but it worked." So that was another thing that she had done for the gay community that, you know, I don't know anybody else was doing that type of, I don't know any pop, she was still an MCA at the time, I don't know anybody on a major label talking about when a man loves a man or when a woman loves a woman, but Jody did. And so by 1995, when she had dropped, when she dropped Affection, she had already done all of this for the gay community. But if my memory serves me well, and it generally does, except when it comes to dates, um, you know, I don't think she ever got no advocate cover. I don't think she ever got no out magazine cover or anything like that. You know, I don't really recall much acknowledgement, even within the gay community, of the stuff that she had done for the gay community. I mean, this was at a time even when there was much more of a gay press just because, you know, without the internet and all that kind of stuff, it was, um, you know, they were gay club guides all around and stuff like that. I just don't recall seeing Jody in a lot of them. I don't recall people um, talking about her in terms of what she had done for the gay community until, well, I did it in 1999 when she played Pride in D.C., but... This isn't about me, but I'm just saying, you know, we're talk we're in 1995 and she had already done all this stuff for the gay community that had gone largely unacknowledged. Um, 
So here she is about to release Affection, her first independent single, and she's trying to relaunch her, relaunch her career. She got all her personal money on the line, and you know, Jody Butler got kids, so whenever you got kids, your money is money that, you know, your, that money needs to last, because that money needs to be braces money, that money needs to be college money, and everything like that. So when you're putting your money on the line, there's stuff that's really at stakes, and she was doing this for her career. And so in this song, For Affection, she includes these lines in the chorus. It doesn't matter if you're young or old. It doesn't matter if you're straight or gay. Everybody needs to feel love. Now, to put this in context, it was long rumored that Madonna's line in Vogue, you know, doesn't matter if you're a boy or a girl, was supposed to be, it doesn't matter if you're straight or you're gay. That was always the rumor, but it was cut because it was felt like it was too controversial. I don't know that we'll ever know unless Madonna or Shep Pettibone decide to tell us. But Jody told me that she came up with the idea for affection, just those lyrics on the spot. She said, I tend to write conversationally, just some thoughts I was having. And affection is really like that. I didn't think in advance that I want to do a song and make it straight or gay. Of course, she received immediate pushback on the single. Um, like I said, this was supposed to be her. Sorry to hit the mic. This was supposed to be her big relaunch single, and many black radio stations, R&B radio stations, would not play it unless she gave them an edit that basically edited the gay away. But she refused, and the song still made it to number twenty-eight on the R&B charts. So I'm going to stop here. Like I said, this wasn't meant to be a career retrospective. Um, she certainly has continued to make music, always experimental and left of center. And, you know, and I personally found that although sometimes maybe she'll have something out and I don't get into it at the time, a lot of times it'll speak to me later in life. Like right now, um, I'm going through some grown man ass shit and I play her song another chapter damn near every day because that's really what I'm going through right now in certain circumstances. But I just really more wanted to talk about, make sure that we recognize um, the people that have done things for us in ways that they didn't have to do. You know what I mean? We see a lot, um, like with this Taylor Swift video and everything, we see a lot of people jumping in on the gay bandwagon now that, you know, you're not going to lose no corporate sponsorship by being gay. You might gain you some corporates. You know what I mean? Um, so... I feel like it's really, really important to acknowledge the people we're doing, we're supporting the gay community back when not only was it nothing in it for them personally, but they actually paid a cost in order to do it, but they did it anyway. And certainly Jody Watley is in that category. So like I said, um, Craig Seymour's, Craig's pop life, we speak names, and we definitely need to give it up for the pioneer, Miss Jody Watley. And as much as y'all in lo love Pose FX, hashtag Pose FX, and I do too, and as much as I love tweeting things to hashtag Pose FX or at Pose on FX about the things that they do, I don't think that it's necessarily be a bad thing to say, hey, what about Miss Jody Watley sometimes? I, you know, where is where is the representation of this person of color, this woman of color, this black woman who did so much for the black queer community? Can't we give her some sort of 
recognition when we are giving so much to this white woman that did one song. So anyway, that's just my thoughts. Do what you want to do. Um, so you know how we do it at the end of the show. Well, first of all, and thank you to um, the person that inspired the show. I really enjoyed doing it, so I'm really glad you suggested it to me. Um, and please keep the suggestions coming. And if you want me to mention your name in a later episode, I definitely will do that. And y'all know how we do it at the end of the show. We always do it the same way. Until next time, be cool, be kind. Be creative. And in the words of Miss Jody Watley, I'm going home now. Where are my keys? Love y'all. Bye.